0: Actung, Achtung, action this day. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and of course James Holland. And what have we got for you this Tuesday? Well, um, we like we like uh, bunging you surprise guests and the unexpected. I think it's fair to say. Um, although if you if you run into this guy along along the way, you'll know perfectly well there's nothing unexpected about this at all. Um, James, who have we got? We
1: have got Dermot O'Leary. Hello How about chaps. that, folks?
0: Hello,
2: boys. How's it going? <laughs> Yeah, all good. Well, you know.
1: Very nice to see you.
2: And you, yeah. very much. It's yeah. funny, you say unexpected. I did a... a Michael McIntyre has a new show. I was recording it the other day. And it's a, it's kind of a quiz show, game show thing. And, and the idea is that that different people on camera or celebs or whatever you want to call us um, answer questions uh, in their own specialist subject for uh, punters. So the punter comes and says, right, yeah. I want to answer a question about food. And uh, there's yeah. a chef there. And the, you spin the, it's called the wheel and you spin the wheel and hopefully this, it will land on the chef. And he had all these people there. Like Gokwan was there about fashion. Susie Dent was there about uh, the English language. And it came to me and I was World War II. And McIntyre was just <laughs> slaughtering me. Whenever he came to me, he was like, what was it like going uh, on the beaches in D-Day? And I was just because they asked me to come up with something I'm passionate about. And that was all I, I, I gave them that. Or Prime Minister since nineteen forty five or Shackleton. It was like for this primetime BBC one thing, like, We're obviously gonna have to take the wall. But luckily I got all my questions right, thank God.
0: Well you you've come to the right place now Dermot. Yeah. Um uh yeah I mean we couldn't get got one this week. Um, the, <laughs> so, so so I mean where does your where does your interest in the Second World War come from? Cuz when we've run when we've run into each other before we've inevitably ended up talking Yeah,
2: absolutely. I well I think is, I've always loved history and politics and I, uh, politics was the only subject at school that I was really any good at. And and then as I got older, sort of 15, 16, you've actually realised that politics is really history. So where I grew up, my family aunt had no real connection to the war because um, we were Irish. And, and actually my, my sort of great grand uncle, they all fought in, in the Irish Civil War and the War of Independence and yeah. stuff. So I never had any, any, um, any connection from a family point of view. But then I, I grew up, when my parents came over in 68 and then they moved out of London to, to near Colchester, and so, by an accident of birth, I grew up in, in the North Essex, South Suffolk, with these lovely, big, booming skies near all these old uh, bomber airfields. So I grew up yep. kind of going to air shows once a year, once or twice a year, whether it's Mildenhall or Duxford. Um, so that was, and, and probably less so now. But at the time, you know, in the seventies and eighties that was kind of in, you know, that, that, that kind of sense of history was still very living around that area and it was sort of imbued in it. And then, yeah. like a lot of kids my age, I, I subscribed to that comic Warlord. Remember Warlord in the 17th? <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then I had that for about a year and then my dad sort of picked it up kind of like willy-nilly one day, read it and just went, you can't, I'm not letting you have this anymore it's, like, <laughs> it's so suspect. So that got cancelled. But I've always had this, so I've always had this incredible um, interest in, in in history and politics. And then, I got to uh, my late twenties, and Band of Brothers came out, and Ryan mm-hmm. around, and around that time, and it was actually, obviously, they're incredible pieces of work. But I sort of, it it struck me that I was about thirty at the time, and I was born thirty years after the middle of the of the Second World War, and and that just felt like a, you know a. Like, yeah. you blink and you miss it really it's just three decades and then i and yeah. then so it was just like 30 years ago i would have been in in the thick of this and i i guess it grew sort of exponentially from there and then i've always i've just i've just become a real keen amateur uh enthusiast really you know i'm i'm, I'm certainly no expert but the more i read the more i understand and i think you know that's that's kind of um how it's always been and then i had the good fortune al obviously me and you have sort of met each other and interviewed yeah. each other and, and chatted many times down the years, and we always talk. We always end up talking about it, sadly, largely off air. And um, and then I had a good fortune to to work with James, in you know, two thousand fifteen, on the um, on the on the Battle of Britain Day documentary, which is just still, um, one of the things I'm most proud of, and also one of the things that still sort of interests me the most. And I think what I love so much about history, Second World War history in particular. Is the more you delve into it, the more you find, and you find these incredible. I've always fascinated by ordinary people putting, uh, doing extraordinary things in the most extraordinary of circumstance, and that for me is that's the Second World War writ large. It's the stories of. um Yeah, I'm interested in the in the strategy and the tactics and the politics behind it all and all of that, but really, fundamentally, I love. I'm, I'm curious. I'm a curious creature, and I love stories about people. And the Second World War, for obvious reasons, is just is just, and still we're finding finding about more and more now, these extraordinary stories and acts of heroism from just ordinary people who are put in this terrible, terrible situation. Yeah.
0: Well, which also ties into your feeling of, well, if I, were, if I were 30, 40 years younger, it would have happened to me. Yeah. The, 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 I think those two things are very, very clo- uh, closely uh, related, very tangled up, tangled up together. In, in when you're looking at this as a piece of history. But I agree. I mean, the the complexity and the sort of, uh, I mean, someone the other day used to, uh, on the podcast used the word mosaic. It's 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 a, more than that. It's a billion mosaics. Or oh, we talked about it being like a pointillist painting and you pull out, you can see a big picture, but you go in and it's made up of a billion, a billion dots. And from everyone's perspective, it's different. Absolutely, as well. that's the other thing that's absolutely yep. incredible about that. Yeah.
1: Well, I think that's absolutely right, and and it's just you know what you're saying there, Dammit, is exactly the same feeling for me i mean you know for me it's the more you delve into it the more nuanced the more interesting the more kind of complex it becomes so that in itself is interesting but also that kind of human interest stuff i mean absolutely it's the human interest that gets you going in the first place because you you know basically it's it's like glorified gossip because if you are if you sort of think that gossip is really being nosy about other people's affairs that's what it is and it is this uh, uh, and it is absolutely the ordinary people doing extraordinary things and if you think about the history of our planet and if you think you know particularly about you know us here in britain or in the united states or germany or wherever in europe there is no other event of that that's happened that's had more human drama than than the second world war and it really is wide-ranging i mean you know just as we were chatting beforehand you you mentioned iceland and stuff but you know we you know the fact that it's it really was truly global as well also makes it you know, very, very interesting, doesn't it? Because you're talking about kind of jungles to deserts, deserts to the Arctic, Arctic to the kind of briny grey sea of the North yeah. Atlantic to the South Pacific, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and, you know, that's a hell of a breadth. Well,
2: it feels like something that could have only happened once and could never, and please God, could never happen again. Because... yeah. Just in the scale and in terms of the human endeavour, because if it does happen, if it does, if anything like that does happen again, it, it will be fought by drones and it will be fought with technology and it will be, you know, cataclysmic. Whereas it felt like a, it felt like period that's, and I think the fact it's in living memory just is still so important as well so the fact that we've all had the good fortune of meeting you know and i hear some interviewed on your mm. on, on your podcast and um and they're sort of my favorite episodes actually is when you guys get someone on who was there and you're and you guys just sit back and light the touch paper and just let them go but the fact that it's in living it's in living memory and that the, the idea of, pres- of preserving those um the memories and those stories and, and, and I don't know why I don't know how you guys find it. it's really interesting now having had the good fortune of meeting and interviewing um a fair few veterans obviously none of them seemed to talk about it for about 20 to 30 years because they all had undi- undiagnosed PTSD and they just went about their <laughs> lives do you know what I mean and that yeah. was the only way they could and it was just wasn't the done thing and then obviously the appetite grew uh but what and I, I really wanted to talk to you about, about this, because it's something that I'm really fascinated with at the moment, is when you interview someone of that age and uh, people that have been through that kind of, of, such a visceral experience, and have also done a fair few interviews, and I, I'm, I'm really thinking about Tom Neal when I ask this, is when, when I interviewed Tom and spent that summer with Tom Neal, which was a, a huge privilege, I, towards the end of the summer, when I got to know him a little bit better, and Tom was always a kind of more uh austere kind of prickly character than than Jeffrey, wasn't he? Because Jeffrey I I mean I adored both of them, but Jeffrey was very kind of arrested development. You could speak to Jeffrey at ninety-three and have the same conversation you would have Jeffrey at twenty-three, really. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's, Jeffrey had this wonderful way of of writing and talking, whereas yeah. Tom was very considered. And so you had to be probably a little bit more on point when you were talking to Tom. But I said to Tom, when I got to know him a little bit better, I said, look, with these, with these memories, these stories I'm asking you, the memories, are they memories or are they memories of memories now? And he said, yeah, it's a really good question. So because I, sometimes when a lazy crew turns up and turns over, I just, I just, I, I go, and I don't necessarily go through the motions, but I tell them the story that I know I've told 101 times. He said, every now and again, I'll just get a lightning in the bottle moment. And I'll say, oh my god, I was I that was there. I was I was flying over the tempestuary, and I, <laughs> I saw that Dornier and I went after him, and I almost died. And, so, and I'm there going, my mind's just exploding. The fact you're even telling me this, do you know what I mean? It's 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 yeah. really well, interesting. I,
1: I mean, I, I got to know them both um twenty years ago, so um you know well, that's I, I, when I first met Jeff, I think he was still seventy nine, um so you know a comparatively young old man. Um, and obviously Tom was, what, 81 or something when I met him. I first interviewed him when I was doing my very first book, which was about the Siege of Malta. And, you know, he'd been flying out there, flying hurricanes in 1941. But, but funny thing is, is, is I actually found... Uh, Jeff, Jeff and I really, really went back because I, I was very involved in getting his book published. Of course, yeah. Um, just one. by complete fluke and happenstance. But, but so he was always... Um, I knew him before he was Jeff Wellham, author of First Light. I knew him when he was Jeff Wellham, kind of former fighter pilot, and, and everyone had forgotten about him. Um, and he wasn't substantially different at all, I, I hasten to add. What I loved about Jeff, and I think you kind of touched on this, is that he just didn't give a shit. He didn't give a shit what people <laughs> thought about him, and he didn't care. So he didn't care who he met. I mean, he might have been polite in front of the Queen or something, and Prince Charles, but everyone else. He just told it as it was. And if he thought you were being stupid... um. He would tell you and 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 you know he, he just he just said what he felt like because he, he he could, and and he was very funny and irreverent, but but Jeff absolutely stuck to a script, which was this kind of you know he could, he could only see it obviously through the prism of his own experiences, and everything else was what he'd read, and what he'd read had come absorbed into his into his memories a little bit. The difference with Tom is that Tom had really properly analyzed his experiences. So he could talk about his own experiences, which he remembered, but he could talk about the bigger picture with a with a much greater level of objectivity that, than than Jeff could. And I do remember him saying, you know, uh, and I was really stunned by this because I never ever heard this. And this then prompted a whole raft of really quite serious, proper archival research after what Thomas said to me. But I remember him saying to me, he said the me 109 could do the three things that you needed it to do it could climb faster than a spitfire it could pack a bigger punch when you're in the combat zone and it could die faster than a spitfire and that's all you needed to do and i remember being really shocked by this at the time and he must have told me this until 2003 or something and um and that prompted a whole load of research and, and looking into it and you know what he was damn right he was absolutely
0: and that, spot on and that- but but that's because you're thinking oh turning circle and all the stuff that was sort of that that we all, we all got as as the sort of, of best milk of the story of the of Battle course. of Britain isn't it you know you're brought oh the turning circle of Spitfire is better therefore it's superior and uh, it, and he basically says no one no one's worried it's turning isn't the point. Yeah, if 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 you're into that situation, you're you're in trouble. Yeah. it's if you can dive dive quicker, that that's the thing you really need to be able to do, and the stalling stalling speed and all that sort of thing. But, and the other but, thing, Dem- sorry, sorry,
1: the other thing, I just remember him. I remember him saying is is sort of he had this wonderful thing of sort of leaning back on his shoulders when he was speaking, <laughs> and, 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 so and 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 I remember him saying, I remember say, say to him, you know, did you ever wake up during the Battle of Britain and not have enough hurricanes uh, uh, at North Will? And he said. No. He said where they came from, how they arrived, angels in the night, who cares. They were there every morning. You know, it was just absolutely <laughs> amazing. <laughs> he was just such good fun to be with. were. Yeah, Jeff like. was also. I mean, you know, when I was down in Cornwall, which I used to go down to Cornwall every year still do, but I mean, you know, he lived in Mullion and and, and you know, we'd meet up and go to the local pub and have a pint and stuff. And was it, he har was he harbor master or something? Yeah, he was for many years, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And, you know, it was just great. And, you know, and and actually Jeff was the first ever Battle Britain fighter pilot that I interviewed back in 2000. And uh, and I met him at his local pub in Mullion. Uh, And this was in the days when you could still smoke in a pub, so there were ashtrays there. Uh, And he picked up my pint... And he picked up the ashtray, and he goes, "So here's me and my spit, and here's this oh. ME109, and I'm just thinking, oh, just can I just bottle this up right now? Because th- <laughs> this is this is what I imagine fighter pilots who've been through the battle of Britain are Light. And he he was so brilliant, so much fun, so irreverent, so larger than life. I mean, he was he was just fantastic, and and he never lost that kind of that that real sparkle. Yeah. He
2: did a talk at the um, at the Battle of Britain Club where, where that's the first and only time I met him. And I was and this is, a, this is an incredible story. So I sat next to this old gentleman who I called Eric Carter. Have you guys ever met Eric Carter? So Eric Carter was a, kind of under the radar, uh, slightly younger than the other guy's pilot, who was too young at the time of Battle of Britain, ended up being part of Operation Archangel and the whole Force Benedict thing. And I, he starts talking to me about his time in the Arctic convoys and taking them... The, the fighters over to Stalin and, and he flew up there and I said to him at the end I said Eric have you made any notes on have you?" Ever... and he just said kind of very matter of fact he said no one would be interested in what I've got to say <laughs> and I went God, <laughs> hold my dear. and I was actually just emailed a buddy of mine the next day and went you've got to meet this guy and sure enough six months later Eric's working on the book and they get this book uh-huh, before brilliant. Benedict's published. it's really, really lovely brilliant. my favourite Tom story we had to I had to go up to um uh, is it nearly? I think he lived near Beccles, so sort of North, Norfolk Suffolk border yes yes and he was right
1: on he was south of Norwich wasn't he that's Bung, it. Uh, near Bungay
2: so I'm going up with Matt Jones who, uh, MD of the yeah. Boltby Academy and we're, we're sort of pitching this idea to him that we're going to do this documentary and we're going to do this whole Matt's going to take the next day of all these spits and hurricanes and that Blenheim John's Blenheim we're going to turn up to Goodwood and you know we want him to be on side because we need it's going to be quite an exhausting summer for a 93 year old guy at the time so I'm 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 getting the train up to uh to uh to Norwich and he lives between Norwich and Diss. But Matt t- Matt tells me I get to Liverpool Street. Matt's in the car and says, "Whatever you do, I said I've fallen foul of this. Don't get off at Diss and try and get a cab." He said because you'll be late. And I was and I was running late already, so I missed my train because of traffic. So I would get on there and I was like, I cannot be late to meet this guy. I feel am mortified. So I get on the train and I we hit Diss and I'm looking at my phone and I can see that his house is only ten miles away from Diss and thirty miles away from Norwich. And I think. Matt's math has got to be skewed. I've got to get off here. So i get off at this. <laughs> get off at this. The train pulls away. You may as well have seen Tumbleweed. I ran out and there were no cabs there. This isn't like, it's, this isn't a small, it's not a village. It's a big enough town no. for there to be cabs yeah. at the station. And then I said to the, like this old, old fashioned kind of station master guy, I said, if you got any numbers for cabs, and they gave me three. And I called the first one. He goes, oh yeah, I can be there in an hour. I'm like, an hour? Where are you? I mean, it's just, what have you got to do in an hour? What are you talking about? So we finally get to Tom's house. I'm I'm about half an hour late, and I, we I get in, and uh, remember he he he, yeah, he was having a little sort of semi nap, and uh, you know he had those great kind of like really inquisitive, almost dancing eyes when he like, and he mm. always he was opened his eyes when he wanted to make a point. And I said to him, I said, uh, well, the first thing I said, because I got to know uh, Patrick, his son, really well, that summer, lovely man. And he said, um, he said, listen, before he sort of gave me a pep talk in the porch, he said, listen, before you go in and meet the old guy, um, if you, um, when you first address him, just address him as, um, I think it was Wing Commander. Wing. Right? Yeah. When you first meet him, address him as Wing Commander. He said, listen, it's just, he'll correct you. And he'll say, oh, don't be ridiculous. Call me Tom. But the first time we meet him, just, just address him as Wing Commander. I'm like, I'm on it. I've got it. I'm done. So I walk into the, you know, take my shoes off. And I walk into the front room. And I said, Wing Commander, I'm so sorry I'm late. Uh, I got off uh, the train at DISS. Uh, I thought I'd get here on time. And then he, he was sort of half asleep. And he went, well, why the devil would you do that? DISS, after all. It's bandit country, and the postscript to that is: I said to him, "So I called him Wing Commander for the first time, thinking he'll he'll correct me now." And it was, and he but never he corrected it. me for the first time. We think so. I was there for like four hours, and we had lunch together. So, and everyone else is calling him Tom, and I'm still at the dinner table thinking. I'm still not entirely sure. I, 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 am so. I'm like, Wink Commander, would you mind passing the wine? It's like, yes, of course. Like, well, when do I stop calling you Wink
1: Commander and start calling you Tom? <laughs> well, the really funny thing is, is that he used to, he had this wonderful wife called Eileen, and and Eileen and him, uh, you know, were married for such a long time, and she used to be in in the, um, she was in the RAF too. So when he was sort of being stern with her, he'd always call her section officer. <laughs> <laughs> but the funniest hard. thing, that my favourite my favourite my favorite, um, Tom Neill moment, there was two really funny stories. I've just got to tell them because they are really, really hilarious. The first one is, is when they did, a, um, at the Imperial War Museum, they did this huge um, Cecil Beaton exhibit, Cecil Beaton's War. Um, so they did all this exhibition and it had, you know, the, the picture of Eileen Dunn with her little teddy bear in the hospital in Newcastle in the Blitz and all the rest of it. Uh, and the picture of St Paul's. and whatever. But one of the great big banners hanging down from the front was a picture of Tom by his hurricane. And he walked up to the, um for, for one of the, you know, the sort of gallery opening. He walked up the steps at the Imperial War Museum but under that kind of portico. And there were two women staring at the picture. And he just stood behind them and went, handsome devil isn't it
0: lovely
1: <laughs> 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 and then the other one was was when we were at the um we were at the sunset dinner at Bentley Priory when it was being decommissioned and and honestly it was that was one of the most memorable nights of my life it was absolutely extraordinary you know all the great and the good were there you know all the surviving battle of britain pilots were were there pretty much um uh, uh, and anyway we, you know we all had champagne and stuff and drinks it was all black tie and terribly grand everyone there with their gongs and stuff uh, and um before we all settled down for the dinner there was a, the battle brit memorial flight came over and did this amazing display on on the bit where you see laurence olivier in the film you know right at the very end uh you know on that kind of sort of bit overlooking sort of you know on the hill overlooking london and there yeah. they were in front of us and tom had just had a hit replacement so he was in a wheelchair and he was stuck behind the pillar and i said to tom i said well you know do you want me to um do, do you want to move so you can see and he said don't worry. I think I know what they look like. Yeah, oh, wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. He was <laughs> handsome as well,
2: wasn't he? Weirdly, I'm yeah. sort of rereading Scramble at the moment, and if you look, mm. like he had that kind of look, at that. He had that
1: great. Yeah, that's the photo that, the Cecil Beaton photo oh, that wow. was on the front yeah, of the Yeah, such awesome. a handsome guy.
2: But I think what I love and what I kind of I guess it's a microcosm to why I'm I'm fascinated by the war itself. In the, in one respect you've got these two guys who can look back at their time uh, pretty objectively and uh, through this you know so we've got this kind of human interest side and and actually what I always loved about both of them was they never resorted to kind of the lazy jingoism that you hear from so many people when they talk about the Battle of Britain you know it's never you know nothing's I remember Tom telling me that it's all about home field advantage, dear boy. He said, "You know, we were you know we were finding about Britain because we had home field advantage, and we had a very we had a very simple system." And I remember you, I was listening to one of the pods recently, and you guys were touching on the English, the the British, the Allied supply chain was just so, so everything was so simple. Whereas the Nazis just complicated so much. And uh, he touched upon that, and he said, "And yet, when we got to Malta, we got clobbered because we didn't have home field advantage." And he's, so there's a real objectivity that I always loved to him that he never. He never kind of like nothing. Nothing was ever dressed up with kind of lazy jingoism or xenophobia or anything like that. And and so I love the kind of human interest story. But then I, then when you look at it kind of macro, there's this power play we sort of investigated in the in the documentary between Lee Mallory and Bader and on one hand, and then you've got Park and Downing on the other. And so you know this kind of the whole kind of big wing eleven versus yep. twelve kind of. Uh, a, a kind of debate and and you, you know and actually you normally say that the victor belongs to the spoils but that wasn't the case at all with 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 that in that instance wasn't it because park and Downing kind of were were kind of uh, pretty much bypassed even though you, re- you could say they won the battle of britain would that be right james
1: <laughs> yeah yeah no, it, 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 yeah i mean you know lee, lee Mallory was 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 hopeless I, i've just i've I, i've i've you know, I, I, I sort of, you know when you're writing about these people and you're looking into these people, you know, you you start with absolutely no axe to grind at all. I mean, I've got, you know, on paper, I've got no beef with Lee Mallory at all. But the more I've looked into him and I've followed his career throughout the Second World War, I, I, I literally just can't think of anything that he did particularly well. I mean, you know, he wasn't particularly, you know, tactically, he was pretty rubbish. Um, he was, a, you know, he's an awful kind of um, arse licker. Um, well that's the thing, you know, thing he, he was just good wasn't at his, <laughs> that's the one thing he was good at but i mean you know yeah, wasn't, that, that, that's I mean, his he, skill set he, isn't it you know he was frightfully wet really um particularly in, in the run-up to d-day and he just wasn't very good i just never quite understood like, you know but particularly by the end of the war you know you, you've really separated the wheat from the chaff and and generally speaking the kind of the, the the guys who've fallen short have fallen by the wayside and you're left with people who are pretty competent on the whole but but he's an exception to that i, I suppose the thing about 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 Dowding is that Dowding should have retired twice already and um there is no question that he is that he is physically and probably mentally exhausted by November 1940 you know he's been working around the clock and his big challenge is no longer the day battle it's the night battle and and, and there is a case for getting some fresh blood in it but because Park is such a Dowding man that if Dowding goes really Park has to go too particularly when his replacement is Sholto Douglas uh, which is why Lee Mary then gets into that slot because Lee Mallory is a Sholto Douglas man. So the, the, the decision was was probably right to, to, to move Dowding on at that particular point, but it certainly wasn't handled well.
2: But that, but for me, it's just, I know it's a lot easier said than done, but working on that documentary, it just sort of gave us the insight to, to you yeah. know, the way Dowding and Part looked at it was to say, well, listen, we win the Battle of Britain by not losing the Battle of Britain. And so long as we don't yes. lose, we win. I know that sounds yes. ridiculous in its simplicity, but but that's the fundamental truth, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it is. well, that's what it—that's what it comes down to—is the the, the 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 German war machine. If you stop it, if you hold it up, time is—it's time—is the thing that that it hasn't got. And if you make it, if you make it waste time, if you make it spend time, it's done for. And that and that hap- that happens again and again and again and again throughout the, throughout the war It's that the the, the the British and then the Russians don't let them take their quick victories uh, uh, in the way that the the French do, for instance. You know, they weren't, as long as you hold them up, they're beatable because they haven't got time, full stop. They don't have time for things to drag on. We're going to take a break now. We're talking to Dermot O'Leary.
3: We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, said, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration.
4: There's a new epic of World War II out there. Sicily 43 by James Holland. It's about the epic 38-day battle that raged in July and August 1943. Oh, it's a story that involves breathtaking action at sea, in the air, and on land. Its conquest involved airborne operations, daring raids by special forces, the harnessing of the Mafia, attacks across mosquito-infested plains, assaults up almost sheer faces of rock and scrub, oh, and had features an astonishing array of highly colorful characters, and all to the backdrop of relentless heat, dust, and truly brutal terrain. Why, there's Patton, Monty, Tiger Tanks, Spitfires, and Messerschmitts. It's got the lot. And it's available now in all good bookshops in the UK, United States, and beyond. Perfect for Thanksgiving, Christmas, or just because it's the book you know you want to read. Grazie mille.
0: Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to Dermot O'Leary. What bone are you chewing on at the, the moment in terms of the Second World War? Because I, I get the feeling we could just talk about the Battle of Britain yeah, uh, forever, Dermot, but um, what, what, what other things are you you gnawing on? Well, i tell you, on? I've, I've, um, I've <laughs> recently,
2: I've never really been an audiobook uh, kind of guy, and yeah. uh, but I've got into like, a lot of Audible stuff. I'm doing a podcast for that at the moment, and, and so I end up sort of buying loads of credits, and, that, and, and because yeah. largely I, I, I tend to just read one book and then move on. And actually, and I've just actually finished a brilliant book about um, the 1916 uprising in Ireland by uh, Tim Pat Coogan, who's the kind of foremost mm. uh, one of the great yeah. Irish historians, which is yeah. brilliant. It's great, you
1: to, have a, that, you ever? Yeah. He he was a lovely chap. I I worked alongside him at one point. He was no, never Fantastic. Meant. Actually, I just very quickly. I remember being at Heathrow once, and they said, um, you know, we were going up on a flight from London to Edinburgh. And they said, um, "Have you got anything to claim?" He said, "Oh, nothing, just a wee bit of Semtex." <laughs> it went down really badly.
0: <laughs>
1: but it's
2: a really well round. It's a really well rounded book, and he's, uh, you know, he's, he's incredibly objective. Uh, so I've just finished that. But actually, um, I, I also have it as a book. But I just thought, you know what, I'll, I'll start. I I'll started maybe a month or two ago. I started it, and I just tend to listen to it while I'm cooking or. Uh, If I'm off a walk with the with the baby and stuff, Um, the Jonathan Dimbleby Bath of the Atlantic book, which I'm really really enjoying, Um, because it's kind of like the unsexy, uh, the the cruelty notwithstanding, it's kind of the unsexy, uh, like you said, kind of grey, unrelenting, uh, pretty horrifying uh, side of the tonnage wars. You know, it's kind of who who wins that wins the war in many ways. Correct? Oh,
0: completely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 the most the most, yeah. it's the most important it's the most important theatre of the war full stop. Yeah. Because because none, none of the none of the exciting things that you know none of the hillsides you can stand on in Normandy are possible if you've not won the the Battle of the Atlantic, you know. None of those places that are nice to visit. I mean the middle of the Atlantic, no one wants to you can't do a battlefield tour there, can you, James? You can't say no, that's next the point. to the Next to this wave here is weather. <laughs>
1: well, I mean, just just say you want to get, you know, you want to sort of, you know, maybe you're doing a battlefield tour of, of the, the Battle of the Bismarck and the Hood. And you sort of go, OK, right, I've, I'm, I'm now looking on my compass. This is exactly the spot where the Hood went down. All around you, what you've got is just grey Atlantic forever. And you sit there and you go, wow. Yeah. <laughs> right, better get back <laughs> to Ireland then. You know, but it's, Liverpool. Exactly. I mean, you know.
2: <laughs> but it's another micro to macro i just finished reading a book a while ago and i I do want to talk to you about the battle atlantic but this is kind of related to that and and kind of related to ordinary people put in extraordinary circumstances now you'll have to forgive me i'm not going to remember too many of the names but it's called 12 desperate miles by a guy called tim brady i think is the name of the author and the story is i can run and get it if you want it's just upstairs and sort of bookshelves and library but it's it's essentially the story of a um, French-Moroccan patriot, who is a river pilot. And he has to get squirreled out of French-Morocco, through Spanish-Morocco, up to, I I think, Gibraltar, that's it, where he then gets taken over to America to then help navigate the fleet to land in Africa to... the Torch. Right. And he is the only guy who knows how to get up these 12 miles of river... To where this uh, German airfield is for them to capture the German airfield. So he's the he's the river pilot, and it is, and he gets smuggled out by these two, USS what is it OSS guys I guess or yeah OSS yeah, yeah. in the back of, in in the boot of like the Chevrolet or something that he's you know How and amazing. he I mean the story is it blew my mind, and then uh, and then they also have to find it's a kind of like double narrative so they have to find a boat. That uh, is shallow enough in its draft to get up the river. So they find this old banana boat, and then they realize they've got no one to crew it. So then they kind of trawl these Louisiana jails for people who have got uh, <laughs> these kind of like like small-time crims who have got like you know um, who have got any sailing experience, and then they give them all amnesties and bung them on the boat. So you've got this kind of—I mean, it's a terrific story. It really is. God, that would make um, a good film, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Twelve um, desperate
0: miles. Twelve different miles. Yeah, it's, it's terrific, but but
2: I mean you know the, the the Battle of the Atlantic is fascinating for me because once again you've got the unbelievable, you've got this politics of Churchill on one side and Donitz and Rader and kind of knocking on Hitler's door on the other. Donitz seemed like. No one seemed to be listening to that guy, and he was just saying, "Look, give me more U boats, and I can, I can, I can finish this, right? Yeah, that's yeah." Exactly I mean, what he but did. he was doing
1: yeah. that before the war, and and that uh, yeah. he was absolutely bang on the money. I mean, they they desperately needed more. There's no, there's no point in them building a surface fleet at all because it's never going to rival the U S. or the Soviet Union or Japan or or France or Britain. I mean, just and certainly particularly not Britain. I mean, it's just not in a million years. So there's so if you're if you're never going to be able to compete with Britain and the Royal Navy. What's the point? Um, the only thing that can compete and, and can make a big difference is vast numbers of lo- U uh, boats. The biggest problem about having a small U boat fleet in 1939, when the war breaks out, is you haven't got U boat crews. So you haven't, when you suddenly do want to expand it in 1941, late 41, 42, um, to serious numbers, you haven't got that wealth of experience to spread through your newly expanding U boat fleet, and that's a major, major problem as you're going into 1942 and 1943, and, and so it comes to pass. I mean, you know. So he was absolutely spot on. But you know, the, you know, Hitler's a landlubber. You know, he's a continentalist. He doesn't really understand naval well,
0: well, and also it, it, he's he's doing it. A lot of the Rearmament's, um, uh PR, anyway, and a great, a big, a big, sexy battleship that you know is competing with British with British ships like the Hood. And dreadnoughts is 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 good PR in a way that a U boat isn't. You know, it's it's willy waving, isn't it? It's uh, as much yes, as it's it anything
1: is. else. Yes, it is. It absolutely is. It absolutely I mean, the story is. of the
2: turpits is fascinating, isn't it? Because it did practically nothing and just sat in that Norwegian fjord for so long. But by just being yeah. there, it did. It's in many ways, it's it kind of it just scared uh, the Allies so much that it kind of it kind of almost fulfilled its purpose. And there's a great story. i was reading a book about it. It's Patrick Bishop book, I think. i was reading this mm. great story about it where. This um, reconnaissance Spitfire is flying up, uh, like, you know, 20 30,000 feet, thinks it spots it, takes some pictures, flies back. This poor pilot is running on empty, is on fumes, is thinking, I'm just going to have to ditch, I don't know where I am. And then just sees a break in the clouds and just, I don't care where that is, I'm going to go land there. I think it's somewhere like Orkney, gets to Orkney and then gets back and he finds the turpits. It's, it, it, you know, it's, 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 and that's like... That's another reason why I'm fascinated by it, because it's turned on a six. So much of it is is dictated by incredible planning and strategy, and yet there are there are these other instances that are, that, that are, it's kind of turn on a sixpence serendipity.
0: Yeah, and you do need one guy to see something with his eyes uh, 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 and get back and report it. Uh, it I mean, the turpits is that is a really good point that the sheer the sheer sort of distraction of it um for, for allied effort but the allies have, are capable of that too is the other thing it just shows it shows how deep their resources are they could they could put all that effort into one ship um into dealing with one ship it shows the sort of, the sheer um material and uh, uh mechanical advantage that the allies have and i
2: tell you one of the, re- uh, one of the uh, reasons why i'm enjoying the book as well is is uh I've got a sort of mixed relationship with Churchill, but I, I, I'm full of admiration in certain things for him. And just the way he, he literally did not let up on uh, Roosevelt. Uh, he just didn't stop, did he? It was just like, and by the end of it, it's you know, like, give me the destroyers, give me the old destroyer. And every opportunity he possibly had, he would sit in his ear all the time. And Roosevelt, you, it obviously looked like he wanted to join the war but he had, you know, America was kind of going down the isolationist route and uh, he had so many battles to fight and he had so he had to be very canny the way he went about it but he was just, I mean it, it's such a cliche thing to say but Churchill was just such a bludgeoner, he just had such energy didn't he, he just never stopped yeah.
0: well, well you could see why he, the, the demand he made of the country was to not surrender never give up because he wasn't, because that's what he wasn't doing, so it's, it, it, he's, all he's saying is do what I'm doing I mean, it is it is amazing that sequence of telegrams where he tries to be emollient, he tries to be blunt, he tries to be sort of uh, um, uh, imperious. He tries basically tries absolutely everything. I mean, it's like it, it's it's. Does it look desperate? I don't know. You could you could see it as that, and maybe from the American perspective, that's the that's part of the problem, isn't it? Is it is it does it does look a little desperate? And he drives quite an easy bargain in the end doesn't he? He gives up quite a lot in the end, because he because he is pretty desperate, but it is that, that, that you're absolutely right, he is completely dogged and will not give up. Once he's got the Americans involved, he has sort of quite high um, expectations of them, uh, which are possibly misplaced, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and you know, because there's a whole slice of the American establishment thinking, brilliant, we get to dismantle the British Empire, we get to replace the British Empire, anything we can do to get that over the line, we'll take, and that's that he's also up against that, and you know that the, the way that the way that um, the power relationships change, particularly after the middle of forty three, when it's up, you know, when obviously I mean we talk about this all the time in the podcast. When obviously the die is totally cast by the middle of forty three, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of more of more enormous battles, but battles. It's only a matter of getting the thing done, and the power begins to slide away from Churchill, yeah. uh, and and the way he handles that is really interesting because because. Because you know, by the end of the war, he we're on the Security Council, and we're still a the, uh, Great Britain's still a superpower, and all that sort. Of, in fact, Great Britain's the first country to be called a superpower in 1944. That the, the words coined for the UK, which yeah. is really or for the British yeah. Empire. Right? And then by 1946, the Atlee government night, can't, afford, can't afford butter. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, it's the most
2: extraordinary thing. The book, and, and actually, what I'm learning about the Battle of the Atlantic is a microcosm as to why I history so much. And and actually, the the, the Set the loss, the losses were just horrific on both yeah. sides. But you know, I did. A, I remember I did a for the radio, we did a, a lovely show called Minute by Minute. And um, we did the first one we did was a hundred years after the Titanic went down. And we went on air on radio too because it's um Greenwich Mean Times. So we went on air pretty much about an hour, maybe half an hour before the Titanic hit the iceberg. And we stayed on air and we recounted what happened minute by minute. And we had music and we told the story. And then we, we came off air at about three o'clock so about half an hour after the titanic went down and and obviously the loss of life was was horrendous and it's it's and and that's a a story that is handed out from generation to generation and because it was the first journey of its kind and it was a maiden voyage and it was kind of man's hubristic view of, of of kind of of uh, battling nature, the stories in the Battle of the Atlantic, the losses in the Battle of the Atlantic—that Timberby just kind of goes, and that went, the, the ship went down with five thousand souls. It, it just—it blows your mind. It's, the losses were horrific, and I cannot think of a worse way to die.
1: Yeah, I—I I mean, the, the, it's really interesting because it—you know—in terms of statistics of the Battle of the Atlantic, it depends on which way you look at it. I mean, you know, eighty-five percent of convoys got through unscathed. So you know what? what but of course, naturally, everyone focuses on the on on the 15% that didn't, because that's where there's the most drama, and you're absolutely right, it's a horrific way to go. Um, you know, out of 383,000 individual shippings um, in the Second World War, um, I think it was 7,500 are uh, uh, sunk. So that means only 0.4% a sunk. Yeah, astonishing uh, success but, story. But, yeah. of course, the, the, that's slightly... Uh, um skewed statistic because you know if you look at british losses british losses merchant loss merchant shipping was was 4000 uh no 2452 which was roughly 25% of what it started with, because we had about 10,000 ships in the beginning. So one in four is actually quite a lot. And of course, of those 383,000 shippings, each ship is doing multiple shippings unless it yeah, happens to be yeah. sunk on its first run. So it, it, it doesn't, doesn't quite follow. But I think just to go back to kind of, you, you know, the fact that the hidden history of the, of the Battle of the Atlantic, one of the things I think is really, really interesting, because it's not at the forefront, because our narrative of World War II tends to focus predominantly on the land battle... We see kind of 1940 and 1941, with the, with the exception of the Battle of Britain, which is seen as a very much as a defensive battle anyway, as a series of failures, of, of kind of Britain kind of being slow to wake up and all the rest of it. Um, when in actual fact, you could argue that actually 1941 is a year of terrific success because, you know, we, so we clear the, the Suez Canal, and that's a problem, you know, with East Africa, that's sorted. Uh, um, that's not a problem anymore. Um, and also, we get to a point by May 1941 where we're not going to lose the Battle of Britain. We don't win it for another two years, but we're not going to lose it after may 1941 and the reason is because of the huge research and development that is going into anti-submarine warfare so you know these there are Huge developments, and the absolute priority in terms of technological advancement is in the Battle of the Atlantic and in naval operations. It's just that we don't see that, and we and we don't see that coming. You know, so everyone, you know, Al knows that I'm always banging on about the cavity magnetron, but I mean, you know, that is one example, <laughs> and that is what reduces enables us to reduce radar from something that's sort of you know next to Dover and two hundred and seventy foot high in lattice, to something that can fit on a on a on a Liberator or Wellington or or on a, on a destroyer, and that is a total game chamber and right a changer and right up until the end of the second world war the germans don't know that we've invented that and and so they're they're operating blind you know advancements in radio uh uh huff duff high frequency direction finding uh all that kind of stuff the the, the just the, the organization of western approaches is just amazing you know it is, it is this sort of you know we've got this eye on every single shipping movement in the world all the time, operating from, from Western Approaches um command post up in, you know, what is it, Derby House in, in Liverpool. And it is those kind of developments that are enabling us to get into a situation where we're not going to lose by May nineteen forty one. And that is that is really, really important. And yet we don't appreciate that because we're we're worrying about the kind of losses of Crete and, you know, and, yeah. and, and
0: Greece and, you know, the, the, and the, the desert the, and all what
1: i was i haven't really
2: uh, got to the bottom of, I suppose, in the book is why we were so slow to take up the convoy system because the convoy system was obviously hugely successful when they when they did start it, but Churchill was quite reticent to to, to start to to, to take it up to start with and 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 similarly on the other side. Hitler was reticent to, to... He was... And we talked we touched on this a little bit earlier. was was reticent to to invest that much in, in U-boats and, and wanted to sort of a big surface fleet. And Churchill was all about these surface raiders going to intercept. And actually, they worked out that the convoy system was far more economical and, and advantageous.
0: Well, it's because it's, diffi- it's difficult to organise for a start, isn't it? It's complicated. You have a problem when a convoy arrives in harbour is that, you know, n- not ports are normally just ticking over. If a convoy arrives...
1: So that, got 40 that's a
0: ships. much it's a much bigger logistical issue so if you cannot disrupt things to, uh, as much as possible i think that's that's the main thing that holds up the decision isn't it it's that they're, they're, and it's also the knowledge
1: it, that the u-boat fleet is really small
0: yeah 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 they, they think they're going to get they think they're going to get away with it basically and not not have to run in running convoy and it 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 is a, it's also that kind of a, a uh admission that you can't carry on as normal, isn't it? Oh, Because after all, the first, the phony war, there very much is a kind of, if we can, the Chamberlain government's very much running things along the lines of, if we could just carry on as we are, really, as best we can, um, the Germans are going to give in in any minute, they're going to realise it's not worth it, the blockade will work, and we don't need to, we don't need to change too much, because we're ready as we are. And there's a sort of, there's arguably a fundamental lack of seriousness, that first, until May 1940, um, in, in some of the British establishment, I think um, uh, 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 Churchill's Churchill's kind of the exception because he's you know he's trying to invade Norway um, b- before not, before Christmas 1939. You know the 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 thing about the Norway expedition is the delay rather than the more than anything else, he's trying to get that off the ground as soon as the war starts and the French arm um- and are and he uh, and Chamberlain Chamberlain arms um- and because he doesn't want to do anything provocative that might Set the Germans off, which just when you think about it, with with hindsight, just seems so 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 bonkers.
2: He's such a victim of hindsight, isn't he?
0: Yeah, 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 he is.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah. we just touched. I know you. Yeah, you know, how long have we been talking now? It's I, like I talk all day, but I don't know. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> but um, we just touched on Norway, and my father in law was uh, my father in law is now in his late eighties, and he was um alive. He was about. Ten or thirteen or something in occupied Norway, in occupied Oslo. So I mean, he's a, he's I mean, he's a great wealth of stories because he you know, he was. I mean, it's quite it's in, really interesting to speak to someone who lived through occupation. And he they drew lots when he was like eight or nine. They drew lots to they knew where the prisoners were. The, the I think the British Airmen or or, um, or prisoners after the after the botched invasion were being held and they had their lunch and they went down and, and they sort of, all the boys chucked in, I don't know, just a piece of rye bread or a bit of cheese or something and then they... And they, but they, they realised they had to distract the German soldier to, uh, so, they, so, so they had a bit of a diversion so they could chuck the lunch over to the guys in, waiting in the exercise. So, and raw, my father-in-law, had got the short straw so he had to go and tell his German soldier to F off. The German soldier <laughs> starts chasing him around the corner and then the lads are able to chuck the thing over. But, we, but that, Have you guys been to Oslo at all?
1: Yeah, I yeah. have, and I, oh, I love Norway. Just a great, love Norway. Love the Norwegians. It's an yeah, amazing place,
2: wonderful place, and great people. And but there's the, the Defence Museum there. It's a, really, it's a brilliant uh, museum of the Resistance Museum up by the, on the castle, uh, looking overlooking kind of Yeah, it's great, isn't it? And we were in there with him, and uh, a couple of years ago, my mum and dad came over to to do a tour of Norway, and so there's a family. We were in there looking around. I really wanted to take them there because for me it just um like. They're kind of define the Norwegians by um, sort of modern Norwegians are defined by uh, sort of two hundred years of independence through from Sweden, so they have a great Independence Day on the seventeenth of May, and also uh, they're very much defined by um, by the war, yeah. and um, and to the point where my my uh, father-in-law is telling me there's the when the Germans first came in, and you can see the the fort, the old fort there, the first ship came in, and they, and the Norwegian. Uh, This kind of land battery just like opened up on it and went straight down. It sank
1: it, didn't it? Yeah,
2: and so... But there's a whole generation of old Norwegians that still won't eat mackerel because they call it the, the German fish because the mackerel just went down and obviously, <laughs> like, feasted on more. the corpses. Yeah, eat them all, yeah. So there was a generation of people that wouldn't eat... Even though they're, like, going through these really, like, pre-oil uh, discovery and gas discovery, they're going through these really harsh winters and they're a nation of yeah, farmers, yeah, yeah. but a whole generation of people that won't touch mackerel, he was telling me. But <laughs> it's like, no, no, it's a German fish. So we're in the... um. We're in the uh, Norwegian Resistance Museum and there's this terrific um wall at the end where you walk out and, and there's a it's, uh, it's there's a picture of a uh, sort of photograph on the wall superimposed. Like sort of as big as the room uh, of I guess what is the um the celebration of independence in the same way when de Gaulle came back into Paris. It's like the obviously has the King of Norway and the flags and ticker tapes are out and and this American uh, tourist was in there. We came out and she went, gee, it looked unbelievable. And, and raw. My father-in-law said, yes, it was. And she turns around and she goes, what? He goes, I'm up there uh, on the left as you. Oh, just brilliant. out of shot. He was just like,
3: <laughs> and oh, the whole amazing. museum was
2: like, wh- like these kind of like American tourists, just like, what? And just, um... Uh, oh, about. it's amazing! Yeah.
1: I, I I was lucky enough to go around that museum with Gunnar Stenstebi, Sternst- who was one of the you know, along with Max Manus, was was one of two of the great resistance heroes of of Norway, and, and, and Norwegian resistance was pretty successful actually. And and I, and I remember um, Gunnar was was saying that you know they went out of their way not to kill Germans. They used it as intelligence. They thought that their role was was purely sabotage, intelligence gathering, and nothing else. And it was kind of interesting how they went about it. But it's very, what is amazing, very Norwegian p-
2: Scandinavian way to look at it as well. It's very is it okay economical. This is this is yeah. what's going to get us the best results. This is how we'll do it. And, and Whereas- he got
1: away with it. He said because he had this, this incredibly boring, bland face. That had no distinctive, <laughs> had no distinctive features whatsoever. <laughs> so he was able, you know, he just passed by in a crowd, no one noticed him. But what is amazing is also, is just south of the um, of the of that rather cool uh, international airport, all made of wood, um, is, is are all these woods, and out there is a tank firing proving ground. So, you've got this is where the Germans have their tanks and they, they'd fire their guns and, and make sure they were all working, whatever. And in the woods, just to the right of this proving ground, is where they would execute people, ex- execute resistors, and the first British glider glider men that came down. Um, yeah. in, in, what was it? Operation Grouse, isn't it? Uh, um, yeah. um, and they'd do it there because um, the guns and the sound of the guns and, and the tanks would hide the sound of the MP40s mowing these people down. And there's all these Gosh. little graves in the woods. It's really, really weird. And it's like, here's where five resistance guys were, were, were executed. Here's where five British guys were. Here's where two guys were. And it's really, really eerie. It's really, really odd. Place. Yeah.
2: No, I, cause Northern France is a little bit like that, more in the First World War, isn't it, with the battlefield cemeteries, where the first tour I did over there, you just realise, you know, because you see these vast cemeteries for the Second World War when you could repatriate and move bodies probably a lot easier um you know and obviously the american one is the one that stands out to 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 memory but in in those first world war tours where you're going back and there'll literally be a field there and there'll just be like 50 graves there or 10 there and that's so stark
0: well dermot um we well i we could do this all afternoon this is so Um, much fun we'll come (laughs) back again well we'll we'll get you back again we'll get you back again at some point um but thanks very much for talking to us and uh um, uh, carry on winning that battle of the Atlantic. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, you absolutely.
0: Thank you, guys. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> That's a real pleasure. Derbert O'Leary, thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.